say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yeah, I never cry even when I'm sad. Yeah? Welcome to Wake Up Heavy, my weird dad's weird podcast about weird movies. Welcome back to Wake Up Heavy Recollections of Horror. This is Mark Bigley, your host. Joining me once again is the host of the Projection Booth podcast, Mr. Mike White. Thank you, Mark. Glad to be here. Also with us today is frequent guest host of the Projection Booth, making her first appearance on Wake Up Heavy, Ms. Sam Deegan. Hello. On this episode of Wake Up Heavy, we will be discussing the 1977 film Looking for Mr. Goodbar. Good Bar was written and directed by Richard Brooks, based on the 1975 novel by Judith Rossner, which is loosely based on the real life and death of Roseanne Quinn. The film stars Diane Keaton as Teresa Dunn, a 20-something woman living in the big city who leads a quote-unquote double life. A devoted teacher of deaf students by day, Teresa frequents bars and discos at night seeking out the company of men, if just for one night. Richard Gere and Tom Berenger in early roles play two of those men, also with Tuesday Weld and William Atherton. For only the second time in this show, I am issuing a content warning as the film portrays acts of sexual violence against women. 
we will be spoiling the film, so track it down if you can, and good luck with that. So, Sam, when was the first time you saw Looking for Mr. Goodbar, and what did you think? I saw it for the first time a couple years ago. It was something that had been on my list for quite a while, but as you sort of just pointed out, it can be very difficult to find, which is funny because I now have a copy of it on Laserdisc randomly. (laughs) Um, It's a film that really frustrates me because while there is a lot that I respect about it, and I, I do think it's a great film in a lot of ways, and I particularly love Diane Keaton's performances and really all of the actors. I don't find it very fun to watch, and I think some of that has to do with maybe the time period, and, and I definitely think this is, I'm sure, something we'll talk about as we go along. Something you pointed out in your description is this idea that she's leading a double life, and I feel like the film moralizes even in a passive way her behavior and that's what I find so frustrating about it it never would have occurred to me that she's supposed to be having this like secret identity because to me she's just like a lady trying to enjoy her life and not be constricted by all of these societal expectations because of the way that that all plays out in the film and of course in Roseanne's actual life it's just really downbeat and depressing that she is unable to do that and Mike what about you I saw this one a few years ago for the first time I think it was when we were doing an episode on cruising so I was looking at these kind of sexual quote-unquote perversion films of the late 70s so I watched cruising I watched this and I watched is it windows the one with Talia Shire Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, there's a much more of a homosexual bent to Windows and to Cruising, but there is that in this one as well, so I think that it makes a really good triple feature. I really didn't pick up on a lot of the themes the first time that I saw it, but rewatching it again last night, I was very taken with the film and could see a lot of other things that I couldn't see before, though the ending... It's like we know where we're going through the whole movie, but the movie decides, oh, yeah, you know that this is going to happen, so I'll save it for the last five minutes. So it's like this weird thing where it just hangs over the movie the rest of the time. Had they not had that ending, I think that this would have been a better movie. Totally agreed. And I think that's why I find it so frustrating to watch is because there's that constant foreshadowing with the different knife sequences. Oh, yeah. It feels kind of heavy handed in the way that it's like, okay, here's this woman who's basically given these two possibilities, which are symbolized by Richard Gere's character and by William Atherton's character, the sort of conventional path and then this sort of more criminal path. The woman is just trying to live her damn life. And I really wish that somebody could make a version of this where she gets to do that. And every time I watch it, like I said, I really respect it as a film, but find it so frustrating. The book opens with Gary's confession. And so you know from the get-go that this happens to this woman. It's hard to have that out of your 
mind as you're reading through the 200 and something pages of the book, you know exactly how it's going to end. And I really didn't like that they did that. I knew how it ended anyway, having already seen the movie, but really deflated the rest of the book for me. I might have seen this when I was young in my teens. I believe it played a few times on TV. Could just be that it was in the air when I was was younger. I remember the skit from Saturday Night Live with Gilda Radner and her looking for good bar playset. You've read the book, you've seen the movie. Now, introducing the Looking for Mr. Goodbar Sleepy Time playset for single little girls. Yes, now your little girl can recreate the grim reality of Judith Rosner's bleak novel of hopelessness and despair right in her very own bedroom alone at night. Yay! And I could have sworn that there was a parody in either Mad or Cracked, but I couldn't find anything about that online. Of course, always wondering why is she looking for these candy bars. That's all I could think of. Mr. Goodbar just got nuttier. Nuttier than what? They added more nuts. Huh. You call that nuts? Lots of nuts. Lots and lots of peanuts. Yep, that's nuts. And all those roasted peanuts are landing in Hershey's rich, delicious milk chocolate. America's favorite. A nuttier bar for nuttier times. Mm. But I do feel like I saw it at some point growing up, either in my teens or later on when I worked at the video store. The only time I can say for sure that I watched it was at the end of 2019. I remember being really, really impressed throughout with the performances. Just the overall theme struck me. And I thought, well, this would be fascinating to talk about. And I just it lived in my head for about a year before I finally decided to do something about it. And then when I watched it this time, I think I felt the same kind of frustration that you guys are talking about, where it was really clear to me that everything that she did was being moralized in one way or another. We couldn't just have... This is a woman living her life the way she wants to live her life. Knowing that it's based on a true story and that this woman actually was murdered in much the way that it's represented in the film, there's still that thought of, if this is what you're going to do as a young woman, this is eventually what's going to happen to you. That is what makes it so frustrating for me is... It's like layers of frustration because I feel like it starts really with that is the film definitely maybe in sort of a soft way, like it doesn't really beat you over the head with it. But the film sort of suggests this idea that like, okay, how does she contribute to her own murder or her own destruction? And I feel like if you read descriptions of the film, it makes it seem like she has she's living this dangerous lifestyle and has this death wish. And at least for me, that's so different from the experience of actually watching most of the film, where it seems like she's somebody who just doesn't want to be controlled by men and doesn't want to be controlled by social expectations. So all of this marketing material and even other film critics writing about 
This idea that she lives a double life, just because she's a good teacher, does that mean she doesn't want to party and she doesn't enjoy having sex? Like, I, I really genuinely don't understand what the double life is. Like, she has a job and then she goes out and has fun. Like, why does that have to be so separate? They make several references to women's liberation throughout the film, which was interesting that they would do that in a snarky way oh very very snarky almost to the point of like oh i don't want to uh, my hands are burning from your bra being on fire and i'm just like what what is going oh. on here what i found interesting was the whole theme of her not wanting to reproduce and her dad and her dad's guilt and all of this stuff like we can talk about this movie in terms of her not wanting to be controlled by people that are very much like her father, especially James, the William Atherton character, who her father and mother just absolutely love this guy. And that's like a huge check mark for her in the do not want column, even though he is a nice guy and he's, you know, he, he is he though? Well, at least he helps Amy get the hearing aid. So I was like, all right, well, that's a good mark for you. There are some things that he does where I'm like, okay, his little gift of the strobe light. I wouldn't mind having a strobe light. That's pretty cool. There are no really good men in this movie. There's nobody I would want to invite back to my place. The professor character is a shit. Oh, he's the worst. Uh, he's horrible. Atherton can be a shit at times. Gear is fucking... I don't know what he is on in this. It's an amazing... A lot of cocaine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's an amazing performance. But, man, oh, man, I would not want this guy in my apartment. And then Berenger, wow. I mean, Berenger just... What, he's in the movie for 10 minutes. He just knocks it out of the park with that performance. I was really impressed. Yeah, he steals it. Part of what I find so frustrating about this movie and why... It makes me uncomfortable to watch. I think is because I see a lot of myself in Teresa's character. Oh yeah, she totally reminds me of you. <laughs> <laughs> I did not expect you to, <laughs> to respond so quickly. <laughs> James's character in particular reminds me of so many guys that I think some of you will probably recognize from the internet where they're the sort and Mike, you and I have definitely talked about this privately before is this the sort of person who pretends to be nice and pretends to be morally upstanding, and maybe even believes that they are the version that we have of that now are these sort of straight white male allies who they don't actually care about politics or whatever social justice issue. They just want women to think that they're sympathetic so that somebody will fuck them. That's exactly what James strikes me as. He's kind to get her attention, but there doesn't seem to be any genuine romance. She even points out, we've hung out a couple of times and you've never even tried to kiss me. So it's like there's this weird sexual repression. And then when they actually finally make out and kind of start to have a sex scene, he tells her that weird lie about his parents. At least Richard Gere's character 
doesn't hide who he is, and you know exactly what you're getting. But with James's character, he's much more insidious. In the book, the James character is quite a bit different. He is, for one thing, he's a lawyer, and they are introduced through a co-worker of hers, and he's really milquetoast in the book, very straight-laced, and basically lets her push him around and be mean, a lot meaner than she is even in the movie. And he's not quite as insidious, but his passivity really ends up frustrating her throughout their back-and-forth relationship. But he ends up having the same fate where they start to have intercourse and she is surprised by the condom. That scene is great. (laughs) (laughs) Laughing at him. I don't remember that he tells that bizarre story in that. I think that's a nice touch in the movie where, yeah, what was that all about? He's really being a jerk there. The other thing that's hit on that Mike mentioned was the women's lib. Teresa is shown as being anti-women's lib where, okay, maybe equal pay is fine, but... It just seems like those ladies aren't people that men would want to be with. It's a little less aggressive in the movie. It's just more of what purpose does it hold for me? I've got a job. I live on my own and I'm doing what I want. What does this label have to do with me? I personally and and definitely other people, other women I know have run into this issue. And I, I think this has changed in recent years in some ways, but have run into the issue where a lot of more mainstream feminism can be really sex negative. In the case of Teresa's character, it's pretty easy to understand, at least for me, why she wouldn't want to be associated with it. Because I think especially at that time, there was this focus on like, well, you don't need men. And why do you want to attract them? Why do you want to get involved with them at all? But also, I feel like we should talk about the condom for a minute because it's so easy watching the film today or watching the film post-1990 to forget that hookups, often condoms weren't used anywhere near as much as they are today. Basically, because of the post-HIV world, when you think about it that way, it seems really weird that he brought a condom. I don't know if he was trying to not get her pregnant or or what he was trying to accomplish, but it it does make him seem as strange as Tony's character, which where the film is concerned is maybe a better mix than if he was just this like milquetoast nice guy that she pushed around here. It's just like everyone in this world is terrible. (laughs) I wrote down that Richard Gere is a walking STD. I mean, (laughs) he definitely sleeps with both men and women, right? It seems like he is an equal opportunity hustler. At least that's the impression I got. Okay. That's spelled out a little clearer in the book as well. I can take the movie, and if I just lop off the end, it presents all of these other much more interesting themes. This whole idea I was talking about how she doesn't want to reproduce because – her family is prone to scoliosis and her father had, and he says this several times, he says, you know, my mother had five healthy boys and she's like, well, 
that's not all the children she had. Yeah, five perfect boys. Oh, perfect boys, yes, because there's the, the sister that ended up dying, and she had scoliosis, and then they call it polio, and I even read some reviews of the film, which was interesting, where they were saying, oh, she had polio when she was a child. It's like, no, no. It, was, it was actually scoliosis, guys, and that's, she doesn't want to pass it on because it's congenital, and it's this weird sense of guilt for her father whenever she brings it up to him. And so that whole relationship and then also his relationship with the sister where they put her on a pedestal, Tuesday Welts character, and it's just like, she can do no wrong. She's fucking fantastic. And she's out there getting abortions and she's just having orgies, swingy, yeah, orgies and buying awful kinky mobiles that she has. <laughs> I think you mean amazing mobiles. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's kinky. It's very The kinky. sex chandelier, as I like to call it. <laughs> and then even to the point where Diane Keaton's character spends the night at her sister's place, but then it's like, oh, well, where were you last night? And her, her father's almost like beating her about stuff. It's like, where were you last night? And she can't say I was with my sister because her sister already lied and said that she was out of town. So it's like she's constantly covering for Tuesday Weld all the time and can never be honest. That whole thing is fucking fantastic. I love just that it's so twisted, so sick. And then there's weird moments where like her father's wearing like a letterman jacket. I'm just like, what is going on here? Is he like trying to regain his youth? I noticed too that they're watching the prices right at her house, but then Richard Gere is also watching the prices right and even like doing bits of, you know, come on down at her apartment. And I'm just like, what is this weird TPIR theme that's going on here? There's so much fascinating. Maybe you're right. Maybe I would enjoy it more if I could just think of the ending as being a totally different thing. Part of cruising, like a deleted scene from cruising that, <laughs> <laughs> that is, doesn't belong to looking for Mr. Goodbar, because I really do wish that we could have some different ending where she and Tuesday Weld move in together and just open this like cocaine orgy palace sure. that transitions into the 80s or something. I'd be down for that. They are both – everybody's performance in here, I have to say, is really good. Brooks does this thing where he fakes us out so often – I was annoyed at it at first, and then other times I was okay with it, and then I I think the pendulum swung back to annoying, especially when we think that her father died and we see him being made up on like the table and everything. He is in a casket, and then all of a sudden he starts to laugh, and I was just like, what the fuck? Oh, you did it to me again. Come on, Richard Brooks. What are you doing? There are moments in the film where I was just like, wow, this is really interesting what he's doing here, especially the opening credits that are almost like this mini Chris Marker thing that's going on. And it was interesting that like her father is in amongst all of these pictures doing this montage, both montage of images, and then montage of song. It's like this greatest hits collection that plays throughout the opening credits, which was just amazing. And talk about a fantastic soundtrack. I was so happy to hear some of these great disco songs, though I did notice that towards the end of the beginning credits, it was like this song and they really stuck on it and it wasn't that familiar. And I'm just like, oh, this has to be the, the sticker on the, the soundtrack album, like features the song, you know, you have to leave by 4 a.m., theme from Mr. Goodbar. 
(laughs) (laughs) I love those opening credits so much, but the song montage is so weird. It is. I I also feel like the the use of songs throughout the movie, it's like there's so much great stuff in there. They're barely featured. It's like you hear like 20 seconds of each song and it's they're all mixed down really low. It's almost like, why would you pay for all of those music rights and not really use the music? True, true. That's why it's not available and probably won't be anytime soon. Totally. This is a case where you could remove them and just put in some library disco music and have pretty much the same effect. I think that was more of a marketing thing for the time. It doesn't add a whole lot to the movie for me. That opening montage is great. If the disco songs were generic or or not big hits, I think I'd be totally fine with the movie that way. And I'm sure everybody else would be up in arms about where's the original music. It wouldn't bother me a bit. Well, you barely hear it. Yeah. That's why I think I wouldn't miss it. Going back to your thoughts on the fantasy versus reality, Mike, I had very much the same thought. I enjoyed it more the first time I fully watched it back in 2019, and this time it was really frustrating to be <laughs> I felt tricked right. a lot of the time but it is interesting that we start that right from the beginning of the film which opens with her on her way to class and her first fantasies with the professor for me it went with that whole separation of her lives that the film was trying to convey that she didn't want her daytime and nighttime lives to intersect and that was why she had that rule of men have to be gone by the morning because that's when I start getting ready for work. So they really set up that double life with that idea, with the fantasies versus realities. It was just kind of strange, some of the fantasies, the whole ice skating. I love that one. (laughs) I didn't understand. (laughs) And when she sees herself as a sex worker on the street and gives herself a wink Again, is this moralizing? Are we supposed to think that the only way that a woman can be free sexually is if they're a sex worker? Are we doing the Madonna whore thing? The whole dad death scene was really off-putting this time around. The one that I find really strange but, but kind of fun is the hospital one where she fantasizes that she steps out in front of the professor's car and gets taken into the hospital and we get a little... Very brief appearance from Brian Dennehy. That was amazing. I was so, so happy. Good. Like I heard his voice and I was like, that's Brian Dennehy. And then they're talking and you know, the parents are saying these Catholic stuff and they wink at each other and he leans down and kisses her bare breast. Yes. <laughs> I was like, this is so bizarre. <laughs> Those fantasy sequences are some of my favorite parts of the film. And I wish that there were more of them. Or that they were, I feel like they add this surreal quality that gives you a better idea of what her internal life is like, especially the ice skating one, which I think is all about this desire to feel special and to feel seen. I feel like the movie does give you a sense that she felt very plain and normal and like she had these fantasies, but didn't really know what to do with them. And I think the one area that it does a bad job with is 
the relationship with the professor, the way that that starts, it's clear that she has had a sexual awakening and she has all of this interest in exploring her sexuality. And there's that (laughs) there's that great scene (laughs) where they have sex for the first time and she really is kind of getting into it, which I think is refreshing because so often virginity loss scenes are shown to be this super traumatic thing. And like, it's not always like that. And so it was nice to have a scene where she's not like crying and in pain and gushing blood like it's a slasher movie. But her her line of dialogue where she's like, oh, is it over already? Yes. (laughs) And his response is like, don't worry, I'll get you next time. (laughs) It's like there's a degree of realism there that I think is really refreshing. But what I think it does poorly is... At least my sense of that relationship is that that's sort of what made her want to be non-monogamous and not tied down and have these flings is she had this relationship where she was in love, but the person just used her. And so she doesn't want to maybe experience that again. So she just goes out and has fun. Going back to the book, their relationship lasts her whole four years in college. And so it's presented as a little more of an even relationship than it is in the film. In the book, he's not as contentious with his wife. He really has no issues with his married life, with his family life. They have kids. They seem happy. He's just the typical college prof who has flings with the girls that work for him. Hmm. For me, that set it up as moralizing again. Well, it's okay because he doesn't really like his wife all that much. That becomes problematic for me when when so much of the onus is on her to be the better person. I don't know if I got that impression. At least their early relationship, he has these lines where he says that he's not going to leave his wife and he's happy with his wife. And like when she calls the house on new year's Eve, he freaks out because he doesn't want anything to hurt or upset his wife. And it's only until later in the movie that he says, you know, it didn't work out and they got divorced. So I didn't really get that impression. Scene that you're referencing uh, in the bar where he mentions that. And I was confused because I thought, is this another one of her fantasies? Right. It came right on the heels of another fantasy. And it just seemed like such an abbreviated scene. There's that moment, speaking of fantasies, there's that moment where she meets Richard Gere. And then you find out that that was a fantasy. It's like that weird cut to him leaving with another woman, even though he was basically going to leave with her in the fantasy. And then a few scenes later, they meet again, and she mentions like, oh, yeah, you told me that, or I knew that already, or something. And it's like something from the fantasy, but then it's like, no, no, she she probably overheard that, or like you could go back and rewatch and be like, no, no, she heard that someplace else. But I was thinking, okay, she's starting to confuse fantasy with reality here. This is kind of an interesting way to go as well. I wish that they had done more of that where the line starts to blur, but I didn't get the impression that her meeting Richard Gere was a fantasy. I thought that he was just all coked up and 
she laughed at him, so he turned around and went home with someone else. That's how I read it, too. But I can see it going either way. And that would be kind of neat if the whole movie was like that, which scenes are real and you get that information maybe from the other character. It is interesting that this was the same year that she was in Annie Hall, and Annie Hall basically has similar fantasy sequences, but they all revolve around Woody Allen. So, like, when he goes over to her uh, parents' place for dinner the first time, and you get that shot, which I think they ripped off in Soul Man, of what her parents' perception of having a Jew over for dinner is like, and he's there with the, you know, the the curls on the side, and he's got the hat, and like they're playing like Yiddish music and stuff. So it's like okay, kind of like that, or like when he's in line for movie tickets and they're having an argument, he pulls who is it, Marsh McLuhan or whoever, like over into <laughs> yeah. the line. Yeah. I mean, it's very like obviously that's played for laughs, but this is kind of similar and. Also, somewhat, I think, played for laughs at times. Like you were saying, uh, ice skating fantasy. Uh, I also wanted to point out, too, that it is a weird world that she's living in, in this what are we at? Like the first wave of feminism, maybe second wave of feminism happening? First wave. Okay. That she, you know, the one of the first times we see her, she's on a train going to class, and there's a guy standing right next to her reading a hustler. And it's like, what the fuck is going on? What kind of world is this where you just like openly read a hustler on a train? I'm sure it happens all the time. I'm not a New Yorker, but. Uh, you know, it, it seemed very inappropriate. I was just like, okay, is this the kind of movie that we're in where, like, everyone is over-sexed and overcharged? And I think it is. You're telling me you've never read Hustler on public transportation? I know. Well, the, the thing is, we don't have that great of public transportation here in Detroit, or else I would just break out, like, Big Tit Milk, Playboy, all these, <laughs> you know, nuggets. Jugs. Jugs, legs, you know, leg show, all of that stuff. I've got a whole book bag just full of it ready to go. It's like, please install a train so I can get on there. <laughs> I definitely did once read Hustler on the subway, and it did not go very well. But that's a, that's a story for another time. That's why uh, you remind me so much of her. <laughs> but one thing that I think is really confusing is where it's actually set. And I, mm -hmm. think, I think maybe because of those Annie Hall associations and just the sort of Diane Keaton, Woody Allen crossover... I always assumed that it was set in New York, but I think it was shot in Chicago and actually set in San Francisco. Is that right? That's what I remember reading, and I was confused by that the first time I watched it, having not read the book yet, thinking, where is this? Because I recognize some of the San Francisco stuff. A lot of the skyline didn't look familiar, so that was probably the Chicago stuff. And then when I read the book, I'm like, oh, this is supposed to take place in New York. New York is a big part of the locations where she goes, knowing that certain parts of town are dangerous and were at the time, because the book takes place, I think, at the end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s. And yeah, it's weird. It's like a nowhere land in the film. That's another thing that I actually found really frustrating, because to your point earlier, Mike, there are things about good bar that remind me a lot of cruising 
it does have this late 70s, early 80s New York sleaze vibe, but because it tries to lean away from that or tries to change the setting, there's something a little strange about it where I feel like it would work better if it was just supposed to be in New York or just was allowed to be in New York. But I also think it would be a very different film if they intentionally set it in San Francisco and brought in more of that 70s San Francisco culture in there because that kind of explains the sister as a swinger and the orgies and all the quaaludes and the kind of casual drug use. I feel like that would not be super out of place if you had, it would sort of have like, I don't know if either of you have read any of the Tales of the City books, but the Tales of the City books have this really similar vibe to Mr. Goodbar in certain ways, except those, at least the first one, there's like kind of a crime story in there, but it basically is like a happy ending version of Mr. Goodbar, where this goody two-shoes moves to the big city into this like crazy apartment complex where she lives with a trans person and people who are openly gay and she's sort of encouraged to go on dates and have sex if she wants to without being in a relationship. So I think there's some really interesting crossover. This just has so much more of that downbeat New York energy that it it's very disorienting to watch. I believe one of the articles that Mike provided mentioned Tales of the City, and I have never read those. They're endearing, for sure. And there's also, I think they were pretty revolutionary at the time because people weren't really writing as openly about queer characters. I want to say in maybe the late 80s, early 90s, I think early 90s, there's a TV show with Laura Dern as the main character that is pretty accurate to the novels. Yeah, you're right. I didn't really know what city we were in. I was assuming New York. When they're getting together, because this movie also revolves around holidays. And we start around Thanksgiving. We've got Christmas and New Year's highlighted twice at least during the film. So you really get to know what time you're in much better than what place you're in. And I was hoping that with place, it feels like her father should be basically the father from like Silver Linings Playbook, where it's like, hey, I support whatever team, the Eagles or whoever the fuck it is. And just like that, he and Atherton might bond over that. Like, we never really see exactly why they bond other than that they're a Catholic family and Atherton is Catholic as well and almost was a priest. He says something about because of my father, though who knows if he's lying or not, because then he tells that tremendous story about his father beating his mother. <laughs> When she's naked, only wearing garters. Yeah. <laughs> like, such a specific detail. I love it. <laughs> Which is strange, too, because then towards the end of the movie, when Tom Berenger starts beating Diane Keaton, I was just like, is this supposed to mirror the scene that Atherton discussed before? It's almost like that scene has take is taking place. Like, if she were only in garters, I'd be like, oh, this is completely it. But I think she's at least in 
underwear at that point. I would have liked, rather than The Price is Right being on TV, maybe having a local sports team so that we can get that sense of place. Because when they do end up, there's a part, part where she's at a gay bar, and I I didn't realize that she was at the gay bar for the longest time. I was just like, boy, there's a lot of men in this bar. <laughs> <laughs> it's singles night. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You mentioned the dad's Letterman jacket earlier, and I believe it was a Notre Dame jacket, and that is one of the things that binds him and and James. I think James went to Notre Dame or something like that. So that kind of brings in the whole Catholic aspect to this. So much of what she does really goes against her Catholic upbringing. And I think, Sam, you mentioned that first sexual encounter with her and the professor among her numerous moans and groans, she really enunciates her oh gods. Oh, she sure does. To a point where it kind of stands out in your head as you're watching it, or at least it did for me. Yeah. That was sort of my first, okay, I'm going to pay attention to the Catholic stuff. And even her, I take it as wanting permanent sterilization when she's in the doctor's office later on in the movie after hearing about her sister's second or third abortion. Part of that is not wanting to pass down her scoliosis, but I believe that part of it also is I want to be free to have sex and not worry about weird condoms or getting pregnant. And birth control is a very anti-Catholic thing, probably still especially at that time, maybe not so much these days. Oh, it still is. (laughs) When this took place, it definitely was. And I I wasn't raised Catholic. I was. (laughs) And you might be able to speak to this better, though, about a lot of what she is looking for in life goes against what her father has been hitting her over the head with. And in the car with James, she says, I hate. And she rattles off all the things that her dad and, and James seem to bond over. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's about more than just her dad. I think it's the whole way of life that she grew up with. And her dad is just kind of the strongest symbol of that. That's actually one of the things that I really like about the way that James is portrayed in the film is you barely see, to your point, you barely see why her parents are so immediately obsessed with him. And it gives off this feeling of, like, as long as he ticks these certain boxes, they'll automatically approve him in a way, approve of him in a way that they would never approve of her. And that was definitely my experience with at least some of my family members, my, like, conservative Catholic family members growing up, where... For me, because I was so different and so anti-Catholic, it was like if I happened to date someone who seemed normal, they were like, yes, this person is incredible. Maybe (laughs) maybe they'll rub off on you. And so it felt very familiar to me to have those scenes where all they have to do is hear that he's Catholic and hear that he went to Notre Dame and automatically she should marry him. It doesn't matter what kind of person he really is or how he treats her. But just because he fits in that particular box, he gets a gold star. That is very older school Catholic thinking. Another thing I think is great is that scene where she goes and says that she wants to be sterilized because having that done 
even today, is extremely difficult. You can't just stroll into a doctor's office and say that you want a hysterectomy. They will give you a really hard time about it, which is horrible and unfair. You should be able to do whatever you want with your own body. I even know a couple of people who had a few kids and said, you know what, I'm done. I want my tubes tied. I, for a lot of different reasons, don't want to deal with this anymore. And got a lot of pushback from doctors on, well, what if you change your mind? And you only have two kids. That's not that many. And it's like, you know what? It's your own body. And the doctor, I think, can make medical recommendations. But I'm pretty sure it would be next to impossible for her to find a reputable doctor to perform that surgery without some major medical reason in the late 60s. Well, I really enjoyed that when he asks, can I ask why? And she says, no. Yeah. And I thought, boy, that was way ahead of its time. It's so great. That was nice. Just like you're saying, for back then, it would have been very difficult to do in the first. I don't remember those questions when I had a vasectomy. Yeah. I was going to say, you don't remember those questions because you're a man. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. They may have asked, are you sure? Because this, it's very difficult reverse and so painful I wouldn't even consider reversing it. So <laughs> TMI, sorry, let's move on. <laughs> I mean, I, I I think I brought this up, but yeah, I, I do think one of the really interesting things that the movie touches on, but maybe could go into more, is the way that it deals with these issues of feminism and what feminism was doing at the time versus a woman's actual freedom to do what she wants with her own body. Right. And even though I think the film does kind of moralize that in an annoying way, it also, if you chop the ending off, pun intended, has so many fascinating scenes like that one. All right, we are going to take a quick break, and then we will be right back with the rest of our discussion on Looking for Mr. Goodbar. Moments, forever, this night will fade to haunted memories. Don't relive each kiss, whispered sigh. Love me, then leave before the dawn. Don't believe it's not goodbye Don't pretend I love you Don't ask if you will stay until tomorrow Don't stay long enough for me to miss you Love me now, ah, then go Here's what some people are saying about the Projection Booth podcast. The Projection Booth is single-handedly the greatest film podcast you could ever listen to or could possibly want. Top-notch. Five stars. This has quickly become one of my favorite film-related podcasts. Always interesting. A completely unpretentious yet fully comprehensive look at films from all genres. The Projection Booth podcast with new episodes available every week at projectionboothpodcast.com. Greetings. Are you a fan of monsters, galactic misfits, and mutant weirdos? Are you a collector or an enthusiast? Do you like toy photography, dioramas, masters of the universe, or Star Wars? If so, I encourage you to follow Skelevator on YouTube. 
Instagram, and or Facebook. Just type Skelevator, S-K-E-L-E space V-A-D-E-R, Skelevator, into your YouTube, IG, or Facebook search engines and you'll find me. Join the Geeky Freakout today. Become a friend of Skelevator. Also, I have a special offer for Wake Up Heavy listeners. If you find Skelevator, subscribe, follow, like one photo or video, send me a message that says these words. I found you through the Wake Up Heavy podcast. Then I'll mail you a Skelevator treat. Join the fun today. Words I do not hear, loneliness removes the need for bitter lies. Laughter through each tear, silently crumbles behind love's shadow dreams. Now don't believe this moment will not mean goodbye. Pretend that I'm in love with you Don't ask to stay Until tomorrow Don't ask to stay Since we've discussed the ending already a number of times, does the ending, bearing in mind that this is what actually happened to Roseanne Quinn, does it lend that idea of if you're a woman and you're going to be sexually free, this is ultimately what's going to happen to you. Does the movie make that point? Because that's what it seems like contemporary reviews and even reviews nowadays lean on and give the film a problematic tinge. And I don't take it that way because this ending It could have been the first guy she met. It could have been Richard Gere. It could have been William Atherton. It could have been a stranger on the street. That danger is real for women. So does all the stuff that come before it get wrapped up into this cautionary tale? Is that the ultimate goal for the film? That's what I don't, I feel like I don't really have an answer to that because sometimes it does feel like a cautionary tale. And I do think there are a lot of interesting, especially New York films that show you this world where everything is seeped in violence. In those films, it feels like there's no particular moral. It's just like the universe is a terrible place and this movie is super nihilistic. But Mr. Goodbar, for some reason, doesn't feel that way to me. It feels like the movie is saying that because she has chosen this particular path, it's inevitable that something's going to happen to her. But it's also kind of frustrating because it suggests that even though her sister Catherine is doing a similar thing and is even more wild probably than Teresa, it seems like nothing bad's going to happen to Catherine. No. I don't know. I think the film doesn't necessarily have a specific moral agenda, but it winds up, I think, feeling kind of confused at times because of that, maybe. 
There are a lot of things in the movie that are confused to me. Even the idea of the title of the film, because we are not given... As far as I know, I looked very hard last night at all the bar names and the street signs that she's passing. And I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, but Good Bar, Mr. Goodbar is the name of the bar in the book, but I didn't see it in the movie at all. Yeah, there is a bar. That's where she meets Gary in the book, is at Mr. Goodbar. And I guess it just works here as a wink-wink play on words. You know, and it's interesting, too, that that title just keeps getting reused. It's used in that sequel with George Siegel, R.I.P., track down finding the good bar killer and that's based on the the actual search for this guy and then there was a book that came out a couple years after the original novel that was an in cold blood style narrative nonfiction. oh yeah yeah i think the gal used the good bar title again and, and as far as i know this is just a fabrication of judith rossner's which is so frustrating. Like, who the hell is Mr. Goodbar? Right. <laughs> give us, just give us a bar sign that says it. Right. Or have a line of dialogue where she's like, oh, I'm going to Mr. Goodbar. Do you want to come with me and get a drink or something? <laughs> something, yeah. I did end up watching that. You recommended, Mark, the um, A Crime to Remember episode. Mm. What was it called? Last Night Stand, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Seems like they solved the whole crime. I always thought that this was an un- unsolved murder, but it's like, oh, yeah, no, it was this guy. I'm like, oh, oh, okay. But that it's a weird show, the way that the narrator speaks. I was just like, are you part of this story? If I watch another episode of this, will you be there again talking to me like you are the one narrating this other person's murder? And I don't know if that is supposed to be an actual person that lived in her building or not. If it's a fabrication, I've watched one or two other episodes of that. And I believe that they have, it's not the same person, but it's a person that either witnessed the crime or knew something others didn't. But that's sort of the device they use as their, the narrator for those. And I don't know if you noticed this, Mike, but at the end of that, they showed a real picture of the murderer and he bore a striking resemblance to Tom Berenger. He's so great in it though. Although I have to say poppers don't make you kill people. And I feel like this movie makes it seem like he's drunk and stressed out and having a bad day and has all of these awful feelings about being gay. And it sort of makes it seem like, he cracks open those poppers and sniffs them and then becomes violent. And like, that's not what poppers do. So that I feel like as far as this movie's moralizing goes, that part is super annoying and inaccurate. It feels like you wouldn't do poppers when you're just playing pinball. Like I thought you did that like right before you're ready to come. No, 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 no. I know plenty of people who do poppers all the time. Really? Social situations. Yeah. It, gives you this head rush feeling. I'm not sure how else to describe it. And it definitely relaxes your muscles, which I think is why sometimes people use them for sex. No, you can do poppers all the time, wherever you want. 
Well, that's good to know. But it doesn't make you kill people. It just makes you kind of spaced out and relaxed. From what I've heard, because I don't think I've done poppers before, but I have done a Whippet, I think it was. Like, I had a yeah. friend who worked at uh, Friendly's Ice Cream Parlor, and they would just had a ball with those near-empty um, uh, whipped cream cans. And, yeah, I took a hit of one of those. I was just like, holy shit, it like almost knocked me off my feet. It's the same sort of thing. Okay. And yeah, I didn't feel like killing anyone after that. <laughs> In the introduction of his character, this is the first time we leave her point of view. I believe she's in every scene up to then. And then we have this weird split where he becomes the main character for about five minutes. And she is just wandering the streets until they both meet at the bar. That was maybe one of the more heavy-handed, moralizing aspects of the film. Was like, we have to show that this guy is volatile. and He's real mad about being gay. This is, again, part of the book that's based in fact. And this guy, Gary Guest, I think was his name, really was living with an older homosexual man and was basically hustling him and had a wife and a kid in Florida. So a lot of it rings true to what really happened. But then you think, well, what was this necessary to show? Is this more the broken man, the other? Is this why he kills? And it's made more clear, I think, in the book that she says, like she does to James earlier, do you even like women? That's what sets him off. And here, or in the book, it's that she kicks him out, wants to kick him out. Her rule of, hey, don't sleep here. You need to leave. That's what sets him off in the book. It is in the movie, too. Is He like passes out and starts to fall asleep. And if she had just let him sleep, it probably would have been fine. But not that I'm trying to imply it's her fault. But Right. Oh, it's entirely her fault. <laughs> yes. Well, she is a woman. She basically goes around asking for, to be raped, yeah, because she's got <laughs> legs and arms and very seductive calves. So, <laughs> <laughs> At least she doesn't have fat knees, am yeah. I right? <laughs> she needs to either put on a burqa or get ready to be raped. Which is handled, you know, jokes aside... I feel like the way that that as much as I dislike the ending and feel like it it's moralizing and out of place, I do think it's very well done. And the way that they use the strobe light, it's like, you know what's happening and you can tell that he's both attacking and then killing and raping her. But I don't think it feels gratuitous. Like they did a good job with it. And I also think even though it is, unfortunate that the narrative focus changes for a minute. I feel like it makes Tom Berenger's character feel more sympathetic. Like he's somebody that you feel way more sorry for than either Richard Gere or William Atherton. Yeah, he is hurting. He has some serious mental issues going on. And yeah, he seems like he's drugged up and he's just confused and he's had a weird time of it and he's a very fascinating character i would almost like to have spent more time with him even though he is yeah. a nut 
obviously I'm not forgiving him either. But yeah, it's just like, okay, this is like a whole other movie. Like, I would like to see where we go after this. Just this movie could have been almost like Slacker. Like, had he killed her halfway through, then follow her. It's like almost like Psycho. Like, oh, we thought that she was going to be our main character, but it's actually Tom Berenger. Let's follow him for a little while. And then maybe he'll get killed or something will happen. We'll follow another character. And that's what feels so frustrating to me is it does feel like it's two different movies to a certain extent. I wish it could, there could just be the one movie with Teresa living her life. Then that second movie that feels a little bit more like cruising. And I do think there's a way to tell that Roseanne Quinn story where you focus less on her life and less on this annoying idea that she's leading some sort of double life. And you look at it like it's a crime story or like a film noir. It's sort of like, what's that really amazing film noir that starts off with the murder of a model in New York? Do you know what I'm talking about? Just give me just a little bit more and I can get it, I'm sure. It's The Naked City. Okay, Okay. there we go. I got there. (laughs) I feel like you could do this story, and it definitely has been done in different ways with things like The Naked City, where you start with this idea of the crime and sort of work towards a seemingly random crime, and you work towards who is the killer, why did they commit this crime. That is something that would allow you to highlight Tom Berenger's character Mm -hmm. without making it this story of, oh, here's this woman living this immoral life, if you know what I mean. Yeah. If their stories had been played side by side and then converge at the bar and either go forward with the rest of his story until his capture or not, yeah, probably would have been a little bit more interesting and maybe less moralistic Uh than than what we end up with because as it is there's like all of these red herrings and then you too many and then none of them end up paying off because hey it's this other guy who just shows up out of nowhere and it's like okay uh thanks like (laughs) where was this guy this whole time had he not given the performance that he gave which i think we can all agree is a pretty fantastic performance had it not been tom berenger giving this great performance had it just been a dude shows up and murders her it would have been like what the fuck man and it's still kind of what the fuck it's just like it's more frustrating because it's like wait this guy who i really would like to know a little bit more about he's actually seemed more interesting than the richard gear character because he's not drumming all the time and (laughs) doing whatever richard gear is doing How can you want to miss out on the nearly naked cocaine-fueled karate dance that he does in her apartment? It's quite a dance. (laughs) With the weird glow-in-the-dark knife? Yes, the -the glow-in-the-dark knife. Oh, yeah. He's got a knife, and then you've got Tuesday Weld's date has a knife at one point. That part actually scared me the first time I saw the movie. Yeah. Scared me even again last night when I watched it because it's been so long since I had. I was just like, whoa, whoa, what's going on here? Oh, okay. This is. Oh, the oh, fake scare. This is for fun. Yes, the fake <laughs> yeah. scare. They're dressing up for New Year's Eve, which I guess some people do. And they have like a whole almost like Mardi Gras thing going on 
at New Year's Eve. Okay, I've seen people dress up like this for Halloween, but never for New Year's Eve. He was basically like the killer in Torso. With- yes. <laughs> a lot of things going on in Looking for Mr. Goodbar. A lot of things. I mean, even the way that it's edited, it's. I think he's doing it on purpose to keep us off guard. Like, we talked about the fantasy sequences, but even if they just cut out all the fantasy sequences, it's still a very disjointed movie, just where it's like, here's a little bit of the scene, and we're not really going to show you the end of the scene. We're just going to move on to the next thing. Not that I'm really complaining about that. It kept me on my toes the whole time, but it is not a movie that you can just kick back and let flow over you because scenes kind of pick up in the middle and they end before they they end. That was one of the things I remember really enjoying the first time watching it and seeing what the edits were this second time where we have that again idea of daytime life and nighttime the quote unquote double life that she's leading and where a scene at night will jump to her in class the next day. Right. Don't get the end of the night scene. Mike, you mentioned that she calls the professor and he flips out. It's split between them meeting up in the car or her calling, I'm sorry, and then him yelling at her about it in his office. Right. Uh, You know, we've completely switched locations at that point. The movie that I always think about with abrupt scene changes like that is The Exorcist. Something happens with Reagan and as soon as it's shown... It's like, that's it. We don't get anybody's reaction to it afterwards. We don't get a letdown. It's just, okay, here's the next thing. Now she's at school with her deaf children. And here it just makes me think of she's trying so hard to keep these lives of hers separate. But the movie is combining everything. There isn't a separate life. This is all her. What she does in the evening and what she does during the day are coming from the same person. There's the moralizing throughout the film, and then we get this where it almost seems like they're saying, no, this is the same person's life, and you can have both of these things happening in your life. And that's what I wish there was more of. This idea that she... I think that's part of what makes it so frustrating for me, is like I don't think it's just coming from the real life story or from the book or from Richard Brooks and his directorial choices, I think there's just this weird kind of tension between those scenes where she asserts her personality. And when you just focus on Diane Keaton, I think a lot of the time there's this great sense that she can be a kind person who is a really great teacher and loves her job and she's really responsible. But at the same time, there's also nothing wrong with her wanting to party and occasionally do drugs and have a lot of sex. That's when I like the film the most is when it can convey that. But then it's like it sort of morphs into this other territory that is so much more frustrating. Though it is a real violation of trust and a violation of the world, I suppose, when Richard Gere shows up at her school. And it's like, no, no, like she is, she is trying to to compartmentalize all of this stuff. And so when he shows up at her school, and I want to say that, that Atherton might show up at the school as well, or at least he shows up. 
He does, and he signs his name. He introduces himself to the kids. That's right. That's right. And he also will just, like, the first time we see him with her parents, it's almost like he just shows up, you know, which is really strange. So he's he violates both of those worlds. But yeah, when Gear shows up and he's just like, oh, hey, it's a teacher that likes to go out and get high and I'm going to blackmail the world. I'm just like, oh, okay. Thank goodness LeVar Burton's there to kick your ass. <laughs> yeah, that part is awesome. Good for you, Jordy. Yeah, I'm <laughs> so happy to see him. That's less about her trying to keep her two worlds separate and more about here's this guy I don't want an actual relationship with and he's also on drugs all the time and can be kind of violent. So I think that's why she doesn't want him to show up at her apartment or at the school and it's like anybody who's made a poor choice of one night stands and then the person won't go away. I don't necessarily think it's about wanting to keep your lives separate. It's more like, okay, can you not be a stalker? Well, there's even a scene I think of Atherton when he's in the shadows and watches her leave. And I'm just like, boy, that's really stalkerish as well. It's like none of these guys are any good. You know, everybody is just a shit to her. I don't think there's other than maybe like her deaf students. There's nobody that is nice to her in this. Her sister. Her sister's nice to her. Her sister's nice to her, though. Her sister's a little bit of a user, and the whole thing of, like, that her sister won't really defend her, and... Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't necessarily believe her when she's like, oh, you're my rock of Gibraltar, oh, and I'm just like, yeah, you're kind of just using her. I didn't mind Tuesday well, but I felt like she was not necessarily on Diane Keaton's side. Which is why it's so interesting that the film positions Teresa as basically being the only nice person in the whole movie. Also, before we forget to mention him, and, you know, he's not necessarily a nice person, but I love that Julius Harris shows up as the drug dealer. That was great. I was so glad. And then there's that weird line about, like, I'm looking for Jesus, and they're like, Jesus is dead, baby. And I was like, okay, more (laughs) of that Catholicism stuff, but... Yeah, that was nice. I mean, hell, if, I don't really do coke, but if, if I had a chance to meet Julius Harris, I would definitely do coke for that. <laughs> <laughs> to note the differences between this and the book, the only thing that she does as far as drugs that I recall is pot. And I believe she does that mainly with her sister and friends. Is this an aspect of the moralizing of the film, having her buy Coke and do Coke? But you mentioned, Mike, the James character stalking her. And I think there's like three or four instances where he is parked outside either her apartment. I mean, I think he sees her go out that New Year's Eve, I want to say, or maybe they were already done by then. But the other big no-no for me is that he is at the hospital Yes. He shows up at the hospital when her dad is in there. And I'd be like, dude, what are you doing? You're not family. Yes, but I definitely know of situations where someone's partner was close with the family. And so when there was some kind of accident or issue or medical emergency, the family called the partner and was like, here's what's happening. That is sort of what I assume the deal was here, although, of course, it is super inappropriate. But 
your point about the drugs being different from the novel, I think most of that has to do with the time period. So if you set something in the late 60s and you have characters smoking pot and doing some kind of psychedelics, that would not be relevant in the late 70s. To make it a sort of updated version of what somebody going out to clubs and bars is doing, like she for sure would have been doing coke in the late 70s. So I think they're just trying to make it feel more relevant. It does make her naughtier that she's doing that stuff, that she's doing Valium to come down and Coke to get high. Is it Valium or Quaaludes? Oh, you're right. It is a Quaalude. I thought that that was, to your point, much more of an updating as far as like, hey, this is this is the drug of choice. You know, 1980 yeah. is just around the corner. So this is a good good drug to have in her system right now. Yes. If there's disco music in the background, oh, someone yeah. needs to be doing cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, you mentioned that she's the only likable, one of the only likable characters in the movie, and in the book, she is not likable. And that was one of the reasons I struggled with it. It's it's a fairly easy read. She is not presented as a likable person. She is backhanded with a lot of people. She's meaner to James, even than presented in the film. She has a hard time making friendships with women. It's a through line throughout the novel that she is not a very pleasant person. So it's interesting to have a genuinely pleasant actress playing this role and it it makes it impossible to see her as anything other but nice. Which I think is a great choice to make. It would feel way more moralizing if it was like, here's this horrible person, and now she dies. Right. I haven't read a ton about Roseanne Quinn, but from what I understand, she was supposed to be a super nice person who everyone liked, who made friends with everybody and lots of different diverse groups. I feel like maybe the movie is more in tune with that than the book. And it's also more in tune with her job. I don't think it's mentioned in the book that she teaches deaf students, which Roseanne Quinn did as well. Yeah. It's just that she has a teaching job. And even the scene where she takes the quaalude and and oversleeps in the book, she just feels like not going into work and doesn't call in and just abandons her students. And they, they flip out like they do in the movie. But it's more of a conscious choice of hers to do that. She does feel bad, but most of what's presented in the book doesn't give that personal touch that she has in the film with her student. I mean, she seems like a really genuine, caring teacher in those scenes. And you cannot help but like her. Oh, definitely. And I'm so grateful that that's included because it makes her feel like so much more of a real person. And... I have to say, I'm glad that I didn't read the book because that would probably just make me way angrier. I kept thinking, I don't recall that this is how they present her in the movie. It really frustrated me as I was reading it. You were really hoping for an 800-page book on the book again, (laughs) weren't you? Yeah. (laughs) If it had been an 800-page book about the character that Rossner created, I would have stopped after... (laughs) 200 pages at least. I want to read a book about Mr. Goodbar. 
<laughs> the candy bar or <laughs> whatever yeah okay. all of the above i this whole time have been complaining about how i feel like the film unfairly or maybe not unfairly but frustratingly moralizes her and maybe if you think about it in comparison to the book maybe the film was trying as hard as it could to make an attempt not to moralize what she was doing and maybe what crept in was just life or films of the time like yeah. Mike mentioned at the beginning this era coming out of the free love 60s and now we're starting to maybe see some repercussions of that and we really start to get into that in the early 80s so it sort of bridges that gap even more so than things like cruising and I don't remember when Windows was released that idea of that sex or perverse sex or free sex is dangerous oh yeah I mean I think you start to see that tipping point in 1976 there are a bunch of films that come out that look at free sexual expression as a source of terror and violence i haven't seen lipstick does that fit in with that i haven't seen that either i'll have to check that one out one of these days but yeah i think windows was 1980 so Right before. And I think Cruising is 81. Is, is that right? Yeah, I think you're right. I looked for Lipstick because I went back and listened to your Cruising episode last week because I know that you had mentioned that that was why you had all the stuff for looking for Mr. Goodbar. Couldn't find it, but read the synopsis and read a little bit of whatever was on Wikipedia. And it sounds like more of a rape revenge tale than Sex is Dangerous. Sex is dangerous, but in a different way. Sex is dangerous, I guess, if you're a woman living... Period. At any time during the last... Exactly. <laughs> millennium. Two millenniums. Oh, jeez. Yeah. <laughs> That's a cheerful thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This movie was one of those where I had heard the title. I think I saw the book by, like, the checkout at F&M or something, but definitely, like... Looking for Mr. Goodbar was a punchline in so many things when I was growing up that it was one of those like, what are you talking about? I heard it so often where I was just like, <laughs> what, what is this thing that they keep referring to? And then finally heard that, oh, it was a movie and a book and heard what it was about. And I was just like, but people treat it like a joke. This sounds really serious. And then, yeah, you know, it was a sick joke. So I posted on Twitter that. I was going to be talking about this soon, and one of the guys I think that follows you and I, Mike, and might follow Sam as well. He's a fan of your show, Jack Media Slave. He goes by. Oh, okay, yeah, right. Yeah. He's really uh -huh. sweet. He popped in and said, "I was just watching this season three episode of Spencer for Hire." What's a nice girl like you doing in a place like this? Looking for Mister Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. <laughs> it was in the air back then. You know, I'm a little bit older than you, Mike, and I won't get into how old you are, Sam, but I remember hearing about it, too, just constantly. And that's why I have false memories of there being a mad or cracked parody about it. I mean, it seems to make sense where you'd have this woman going around and then finally finding the candy bar, right? So that's I always associated it with the candy bar. And then you find out it's, yeah, this serious tale about this woman getting murdered and the quote-unquote double life and 
Speaking of the double life, just to go back to that real fast before we wrap up here, what do you call that when it's a guy? A normal life. You call it a normal <laughs> life. That's why it enrages me so much. And I'm not shouting at you. I'm shouting at the universe. I'm shouting at the clouds like the angry old man that I am. I feel like you still see this now. And I know this isn't super current anymore. But even on shows like Sex and the City, where you have a character, one of the characters who, at least in the first couple seasons, basically says, I don't do relationships. I just want to have one night stands. Even though she is a major character, she's slut shamed in every episode. Good Lord, yeah. To me, it's like that's what this is. Like, it's not a double life. She's just trying to have a, the normal life of her own choosing. And you're so right that if it was a male character, unless there was something involved where it was like, you know, Richard Gere's character and they showed how he hustles people to make a living. It would just be a normal life. Mm -hmm. Enraging. Yeah. Yeah, When I think of men with a double life, they're usually a spy or something. Right. Or like they have two families or something crazy. Right. Right. Which I will never understand as long as I live. Having one is hard enough. I don't know. (laughs) Who has time? I don't know, right? What the appeal is about that. I want to thank my co-hosts for being on the show. Mike, what's happening in April at the projection booth? Oh, April's an interesting month. We are doing half the month is war films. So we're talking about Kelly's Heroes, which Sam is on. Also talking about Under the Flag of the Rising Sun, a amazing film by Kenji Fukusaku. And also talking about two John Carpenter films. We're going to be uh, discussing his uh, love of... Uh, anti-heroes, I guess. So uh, Assault on Precinct 13 and Escape from New York. Really looking forward to talking about all those movies this month. And Sam, what is happening in your world? I always am sad when people ask me this question because I have (laughs) goldfish brain and can't remember what it is that I am allowed to announce and what I'm not as far as film commentaries go. The one thing I can talk about, speaking of war films, is I wrote a book called The Legacy of World War II in European Art House Cinema, and that should be out later this spring from McFarland Books, and you can find it on their site now uh, for pre-order. And how's that rabid book coming? Slowly, <laughs> but surely. <laughs> awesome. Well, I will be getting that for sure. You have one sale at least. Thank you. That's I mean, I it's one of those things where I tend to always work on multiple books at once and whatever I'm kind of inspired to work on at the moment, I'll usually churn out a few chapters. And I think with that one, I just love Cronenberg so much that I keep overthinking it and rewriting <laughs> things. <laughs> Easy to do to not want the project to end. Exactly. <laughs> Well, thank you both again for being on the show, and thanks to everyone for listening. For more information about this episode and previous episodes of Wake Up Heavy, please visit wakeupheavy.com. The show is available on most major podcast platforms. And don't forget, anything can happen when you wake up heavy. (laughs) 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.